I just did an interview with Tula Pink, and she knocked it out of the park. In fact, her interview was so great and so long that we made it into two episodes. So here's how it went. If you haven't heard of my guest today, you're either not a quilter or you've been hiding under a rock or a quilt. She is a fabric designer, quilt maker, influencer, and playful personality on the quilting scene. Everything that bursts out of her mind and onto fabric sells like hotcakes, faster than quilt stores can even stock it. She has a family-run business that runs like a well-oiled machine. And yes, there will be puns today. When she goes to quilt market, she is on the leading edge of innovation and fresh design. It's no wonder that she has legions of fans. So today, and next week, for two episodes in a row, I'll roll out my chat with Tula Pink. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, where I explore quilting stories that will inspire, motivate, and bring you more joy and less overwhelm in the studio. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, also known as the Quilter on Fire, and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you. So here we go. My guest today is an icon of the fabric and quilting world. She has designed over 40 fabric collections for Free Spirit Fabrics, as well as thread collections for Aurifil, ribbon and trim collections, needlepoint kits, and her own line of sewing tools called Tula Pink Hardware. She is an international spokesperson for Bernina Sewing Machines, a book author several times over, and a businesswoman extraordinaire. So let's explore the story of Tula Pink. Tula, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Oh, it's a delight to have you. So first of all, let's throw a little something out there. We're recording this shortly after Quilt Market, but if you're listening to this right now, it's December 20th or later. So this is the last episode before Christmas. So Tula, how do you celebrate the holidays? I love the holidays. They occur in my, or these particular holidays occur in my favorite season, which is winter, which I love winter. It's my favorite time of year because the best time to make quilts. So my family is rather large. My extended family is pretty large. So we have big holiday gatherings. Everybody shows up. It's required no exceptions. So, you know, like Christmas Eve is kind of when we do the big extended family. And that's like, that can be like 50 people or more for dinner. Wow. And it's totally epic and super fun. And I completely love it. And then Christmas Day, we do more of like the nuclear family. Yeah. And I always sleep over at my mom's on Christmas Eve, even though it's only 20 minutes away, because my little sisters are young and get up super early and get all excited to do the whole thing. So it's, it's super fun. I like to be there and I like to be woken up by them super early in the morning and, you know, do the whole thing. And then we spend the whole day watching movies and eating junk food and it's great. Oh, that sounds like a nice family tradition, actually, the, the movie thing. We watch the same movies every year, too. Oh, like, nice. they're not new movies. Like, it's the same selection of movies in the same order every year. Oh, yeah, that's such a great tradition. So do you go crazy decorating the house or do you 
do you guys decorate at mom's mostly or? I don't decorate at all because really I'm not here. So, you know, we go usually into Kansas City because we live in the country outside of Kansas City. And so I'm, I'm not here. So I don't do anything. But my mom goes all out. I mean, oh. it is like five foot tall nutcrackers at the door, staircase wrapped in garland, dripping with ornaments. There's a tree upstairs. There's a tree downstairs. There's a tree in the dining room. Like, it's a whole thing. Well, and I mean, just from the booths that you have at market and the way that your website, I can tell that your mom is very infused into design and that kind of part oh, of yeah. the business. My yeah, mom that's... has a great eye. Like it, and I always show her my fabric collections before I send them off to Free Spirit. And really, f- for my entire career without fail, whichever one is her favorite will be the bestseller. She oh, just wow. has like a great eye. Yeah. Oh, that's so great to have that so close. That's great. Okay. So that was such a nice little way to start off the podcast. I wanted to just infuse a little bit of holiday season in there, but now I know you started quilting at a very young age. So tell us about your first encounter with quilting. I mean, the way I got to quilting, I've told this story many times before, but was really by accident because I don't come from a family of quilters. They all quilt now because I needed people to sew with, but, (laughs) but I came to it just kind of on my own, weirdly, really young. Actually, Christmas is kind of the anniversary of me taking up sewing, which I never actually thought about that until this very moment. But my grandma gave me a sewing machine for Christmas. She didn't sew. Nobody in my family sewed, but I was a maker. I've always been a maker, drawer, creator, whatever. And, you know, I I had all the other things to make. I had clay. I had like little woodshop tools. I had like And she wanted to see what I do with a sewing machine. That was literally the driving force of it. I didn't ask for it. She just thought, Tula might like this, you know? So she gave me the sewing machine, really little, stupid, little cheap sewing machine, like nowhere near the Berninas I use today. But really, I just had to go looking for fabric because I was, I was taking things from around the house and that was driving my mom nuts and like taking them apart and sewing them. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so she's like, okay, we're going to take you to a fabric store. That's it. Enough. Like enough of this destroying our house for fabric things. I think I had like deconstructed a dining chair at one point because I wanted to fabric <laughs> Like she's like enough. I was 12 and had very little respect for my mom's home and, and how she kept it, you know, as 12 year olds do. But yeah, so we went to a fabric store and the first one we came across was a little quilt shop in our town. I grew up in Southern California, so it was there. And I mean, I didn't know there were different kinds of fabric shops for different kinds of fabrics and different kinds of sewing. It was just like you sew and then there's fabric. That's as much as I knew. And this just happened to be a quilt shop. And if it had been any other kind of fabric store, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. I probably would have sewn for a little while, made some clothes, maybe done some home items and walked away. I just, it never would have held my attention. Just as today, you know, almost 30 years later, no, exactly 30 years later, it it doesn't hold my attention today either, you know? So it was just quilting. There was something about that sort of intersection between art and, and math and structure that really appealed to me because I am very, I very much live in that sort of cross zone. I love structure. I, I was only good at two subjects in school, math and art, like like it's just 
so serendipitous that I found this one thing that sort of serves my talents the best. And I just fell in love with quilting right away. And back then there was nothing that appealed to my taste, but it's like, it's like, I knew I could see that there was more to it. I mean, the, the shop that I went into 30 years ago was a very traditional quilt shop. It was a lot of civil war reproductions. It was a lot of novelty in thirties and batiks. And that was about it. But I could take those things and make something out of it that worked for me for a while until it didn't. And then I became a fabric designer, but that's how I got into it. It was really just like a total accident. Yeah. So were there certain people along the way that kind of had an impact on your quilting career early on? Oh, for sure. And we have to remember this is pre-YouTube. So if I wanted to learn something, I need to find a human who knew it face to face. (laughs) So, I mean, I went to that quilt shop as often as my mom would take me to ask how to do things or to take some little classes here and there, which I couldn't take a lot of the classes because they were really for adults and I was a child. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, my mom worked. So it's not like she could go sit and take the class with me. And they didn't want the liability often of having a kid in the class. And there weren't a lot of kids sewing. So they didn't have a kid's class. I mean, I think along the way, I have been really, really lucky in like meeting people throughout really in my career that have had a huge impact on me. And, and then when I started to drive, I would start going to other quilt shops and I discovered that there were way different kinds of fabric out there that my local little tiny shop didn't carry. And that's what made me sort of realize that there was this sort of a bigger world of quilting out there. And it just kept me in it. I mean, I just never dropped it. I always quilted from the day I discovered it until today. I've just always made quilts. I've just loved it forever. And how did your quilts change over time? Like, did they start off as quite traditional when you were learning and then over time they changed in style? I don't know. I still consider my, my quilting style to be deeply traditional. Yeah. I love quilts because they're quilts. So I don't have a huge desire to make them look like anything else. Yeah. I love like the most traditional quilts. I mean, that's what I get the most excited about. The only difference between sort of what I like and, and truly traditional quilts is color. I just, I just love color differently. I mean, I even consider my fabrics to be deeply rooted in traditional designs. I mean, I, I don't consider myself anything remotely modern really. Yeah. And and it's it's funny when I'm I'm sort of like put in that category with so, and I look around and I'm like I do not belong with you people you know it I know it <laughs> you know well um, and I think I would say more like contemporary because it's it that sort of seems like a word to me that's changing with the times every time you come yeah. out with a new collection it's so fresh and new right yeah I mean I I try to keep things fresh. I, it still always starts from like the the inspiration point is usually something really traditional. I mean, my favorite fabric designer is William Morris, which is like the epitome yeah. of traditional design. I just maybe take it in a different way. I mean, all of my tattoos are based on William Morris drawings and and line work and shapes and everything, you know, so it's like I do these maybe considered more modern things, but it all starts from this really traditional place. 
Yeah. So William Morris is like the detailed animal. It's it's that gorgeous, very detailed fabric, right? I mean, I love a detail. Like I'm obsessed with a detail. I, I mean, if there's room for two details, I'll put four. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the mill that prints my fabric probably despises me because I make things incredibly difficult for them. You know, it's like, I'm always trying to sort of like pack more in. I'm definitely not like a a minimalist in any way in any part of my life, to be honest. Okay. Well, I want to start with sort of where are you living now and who are your loved ones that you share your world with every day? I live in the Midwest, about 40 minutes north of Kansas City in a little suburb of Kansas City. I was born and raised in Southern California and Los Angeles. So pretty big difference for me, but I've lived here for I don't know, 10 plus years now. And I really love it. I love the seasons. I love everything about living in the Midwest, really. It's just a different pace. It's a different lifestyle. Yeah. I work day to day. My sort of right hand is my brother, Cameron. Really, he's a part of every single thing I do. And I think if you would have told either of us, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that we would be working together, building a business in a, in the quilting industry, we both would have laughed, but here we are. Yeah. And your mom's involved too, right? Yeah. She runs a shop called I Heart Tula Pink. So connected, but not like, I'm not a part of that business, but she runs a shop that sells all Tula Pink products. So she owned a quilt shop for a while. And she's actually the one who got the number for the art director. So I could send my original designs in from one of her sales reps back in the day. Because like I said, I kind of dragged my whole family into quilting at a certain point. And so when she retired and moved to the Midwest, which is how I got here, I didn't just land here like randomly, but she opened a quilt shop like as a retirement. (laughs) My mom's not an idle person. So like she's very active and retirement suited her for about four minutes. And then (laughs) she opened a quilt shop, built it to a huge, huge quilt shop in the Midwest. And, and so she really helped me, you know, I told her I was designing a fabric line just for me. I had no intention of changing careers. I had a job, a really good job that I worked really hard to move up in. And, and she's like, well, send it to somebody like, don't just sit on it. That's stupid. You've done the work now. Like let's, let's, what's the next step. I mean, my mom is a mover. Like she does not do anything halfway. So, so she got a couple of email addresses for the art directors for a couple of companies from her sales reps, send them to me. And I was like, yeah, why not? And I sent them out and, you know, three days later I was a fabric designer. So my mom is very involved in a lot of the processes and stuff. Day to day, she doesn't work in the studio with us. But, you know, I do run things by her because she's my mom and she typically knows best. So, And you have two young twin sisters. Do they poke their nose in once in a while and get involved in things? I have two little sisters. They're 16 and they could care less about what I do for (laughs) a living. (laughs) I've tried to get them into sewing. I've tried to get them into things at various levels and they just are not having it, but you know, to each their own. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I just want to give a nod to the design on your website. I mean, your website is gorgeous. And so like, who came up with the idea for the cover there? Like just the paint, the fabric going into the can. Like so yeah, gorgeous. so the website, so that's actually a friend of mine, Sandra Smith. I send her, she actually works for another friend of mine who owns Pink Door Fabrics. And 
she's a photographer. I am not. I hate photography. I have no interest in it. I would rather make something than take a picture of it. It's just not my not my jam. Never has been, which is a little bit of a detriment to my business. It's like definitely better if you like taking photos. But so I, every time I get a new collection in, I just cut her a bundle of it and I send it to her. And Sandra, like, that's all her. Like, I had nothing to do with that. I sent, all I did was send her a fat quarter bundle. And that's what I got back is that photo of the fabric coming off paintbrushes. I'm like, okay, like, I have no business being anywhere near a camera. This is what you do with literally no prompt whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so if you're listening right now, you have to go to Tula's website. It's tulapink.com. The visuals on that website are just gorgeous. And that's what we're talking about. So, okay. Yeah. So before we get into, fabric. I, I mean, I want to talk about the designs all day long, yeah. but how did your quilting story blossom from there? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'm only maybe even halfway through the conversation on what my quilting evolution yeah. is. I mean, I learn something new every day. Like it's, I'm constantly sort of evolving how I quilt and, and what I make. And, but I mean, really, I would say the the big turning point for me in my quilting was seeing Kafe facets fabric for the first time. Ah. That was a big deal. Like I that that was a pivotal moment because up until then, I had really been trying to find things that suited my sensibility. And the first Kafe line that I saw was at a little store called Treasure Hunt in Carpinteria, California, which is like was a glorious store. I think it's called Roxy's now. I mean, this was 20 something years ago, so I have no idea, but gorgeous store. And I walk in and dead center of this store is just this huge display of cave facet fabric. And that was the first time that I looked at fabric and said, somebody designed this, a person designed this. It's not a reproduction. It's not a rehash thought. This is an original thought from an original mind. And up until then, I don't think I really ever considered the fact that somebody designed fabric. It just existed. You know, it was just there. It was just there as a reference to something of the past. Right. And this was not that this was the future. This was now, this wasn't something from ages ago or a solid, you know, like it just wasn't basic and I'd never seen anything like it. And it's funny because I would say my first properly made quilt came about in my 20s. Even though I had been making quilt tops up until then, I actually didn't know how to finish them. I didn't know how to quilt them and I didn't know how to bind them. Like this is just, I had never learned it. And so I was making patchwork quilt tops and then making them into clothes, which I wish I still had because it's like a whole thing now that I think I can make a lot of money on Yeah, they were poorly made clothes. So maybe not so much money, but, and so I bought all of his woven stripes, just like every single stripe they had. And I just never seen these colors and they shimmered and it was just so different. And it still wasn't exactly my sensibility, but it was the closest I'd ever come to it. Right. And so I bought all of his wovens, all of his stripes. And then I saw a picture of a quilt on a book he had put out and I didn't know who he was or anything, you know, I was still pretty green, but I looked at the quilt. I thought 
that's just geometry. I can figure that out. I mean, I didn't know how to read a quilt pattern. So it's not like I didn't buy the book with the pattern in it because I wanted to save money. I didn't buy the book with the pattern in it because I didn't understand it. And so I came home, I sort of sketched it out on graph paper and it was like hourglass blocks, you know, like the four triangles that meet in the middle. And And I just tried to figure it out. Of course, now I could probably make that quilt 10 times easier than I made it back then. But then when I made the quilt, I was like, oh, but I'm like, you know, I need to like make it a little bit cooler because like quilting was still like not a cool thing to do then. So I was kind of a closet quilter. And so I embroidered these giant skeletons writing birds all over it. It was like a whole thing. And that was the first quilt I ever quilted. Like that was the first quilt that I made that I wanted to finish and use like in a more traditional way. And so for me, that was a compliment to the quilt, right? Like that I actually wanted to like figure out how to finish this thing. So I did it. I still have it. It's a mess, but I love it, you know? So that's really what I consider my first like finished complete quilt. I found it super weird. Like I look at it now and I'm like, I don't even know that I could replicate this today. It's, <laughs> it's so strange, but, but I was, it was pre YouTube. I had to figure this stuff out on my own, you know, like I didn't, there wasn't a resource I could go to that would show me how to do these things. So it was all just self-taught. And I think I have largely kept that going. I, I still today quilt by imagine, I don't start from my skill set. I start from what I want the quilt to look like and then work backwards to figure out how to make it. And I still do that today. I just have a lot more tools in my arsenal now. Yeah. But like, I mean, I'm still evolving right now. I'm learning, I'm teaching myself applique. Like Mm -hmm. I've just never really applicated. It just, I love patchwork bottom line. I just love traditional patchwork. Like give me an eight pointed star all day long. Yeah. I'll make a million of them and I'll be happy as a mash cat. So it's, yeah, it's still evolving. Like I, I'm learning applique right now because I have an idea of a quilt that I want to make someday yeah. that I've actually had like in my back pocket for like 10 years, but I don't have the skills to make it yet. So, yeah. and it requires some applique. So I'm, I'm always learning skills to evolve my craft, but I really start from a place of what do I want the quilt to look like and work backwards. Yeah. So cool. And so in all of your travels and everything that you do today, have you been able to meet Kafe a few times now? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like we know each other now. Yeah. Yeah, And he knows this story and, and it's a really, you know, it's, it's interesting, like how it all comes full circle because, you know, I was just listening to a podcast the other day where he gave me some credit for some inspiration of his. And it's like, you know, it's, it's so interesting that this person that had a big impact not so much on me becoming a quilter, but me becoming a fabric designer and is now like my colleague yeah. And somebody that I can like shoot an email to and be like, hey, bro. <laughs> so great. So great. You know, pretty yeah. Cool. There is so much to tackle here. And so we're going to dive right into fabric design. So what was that first collection with Moda Cult? Describe it to us. It was called Full Moon Forest. My mom named it. My mom names a lot. Of, my mom and my brother name a lot of stuff. I don't like to name things. It's super boring. By the time I've drawn it, I'm over it. I don't want to name it, but okay. things need names. So it was called Full Moon Forest. And I started out my first collection, you know, thinking, okay, I need, here's what a fabric collection must contain. There must be a stripe, a dot, a paisley, a large floral. Like I'm very 
analytical in sort of all ways, which I think sometimes is surprising for people because I think I'm supposed to be like more of a like artist who follows my whimsy, but I'm not. I'm also very type A. So so I kind of like analyzed the market as a whole and thought like, what makes a fabric collection, right? And so I sat down with these lists of like things I needed to hit to make a collection that was really useful. And so I started drawing a paisley. I started like drawing a stripe. And then I was like, oh, I can make the stripe like birch trees instead of just lines. And then by just like putting some branches and like putting some lines into the stripe itself, I can kind of round it out and make it a tree. And then I can take this like vine pattern. And if I like bend the vines just right, I can make it into little squirrels. And then I was looking at the paisley and I said, you know, it kind of looks like an owl. If I just changed a few of these lines, I can let other people see the owl too, you know? And so I started doing that and I started taking these really traditional prints. I mean, I think my polka dot was a raindrop. Like I turned everything into something else, which is also something I do kind of all over in like, if I can make something funny or amusing in some way, I'm always going to take that path over something serious and artistic. Like I'm always going to take the path of humor over anything else. And, and so I did that and I was like, this is actually really cool. And I, I turned that first line in and I remember my art director at the time telling me, this is really cool. This sort of like traditional patterns with hidden animals in it. And she said, you know, you're going to have to do this for the rest of your life. (laughs) If this is what you're going to do, like, this is your brand, you're going to have to do this forever. And I I genuinely hadn't thought about it like that. You know, I, at that time, I mean, I was just thinking every collection would be a new proposition, a new concept, whatever. And she goes, you'll have to do this forever. Like, this is your brand. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Like I can draw animals forever. And here we are 15 years and 40 collections later, like I'm still doing it. (laughs) So So it's something and I, that I actually I- remember listening to, I think, a live you're doing a couple of years ago. And I remember it was one of your first collections that really wasn't completely full of animals. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the comments saying, like, are there animals hidden in here somewhere? You know, it was yeah. so adorable. I mean, they people- all have animals in them. Yeah. Some more than others. And of course, you know, my style has evolved. Like. Yeah. You know, and it's really funny, like thinking back to those early collections, those animals were deeply hidden, like Mm -hmm. very difficult to find. And, and I remember like, I mean, I was probably six lines in six collections into my career. And I remember a sales rep and it wasn't, it wasn't successful until later. Like, you know, it was hard to get off the ground because there wasn't a market for what I was doing. And so it was really hard to find my customer in those early days. And, and my fabric didn't sell like super, super well, you know, in the beginning for sure, for a long time, like it was a slow build. And I remember one of the sales reps coming up to me and saying, you know, I'm just having a really hard time selling your fabric. Can you help me? I was like, well, sure. You know, like, are you showing them the animals? And he goes, the animals. I said, yeah, the the hidden animals in the fabric. He goes what animals? Oh my gosh. And so that's, I was, I I thought to myself, I said, oh, people aren't seeing this. Like I'm being too sort of, I'm, I'm too deep in this. And so now I, I try to do a hybrid thing, like a hidden thing, a, a less hidden thing, a more obvious thing. And sometimes I'm just straight out illustrating the animals. which I also love, so it's evolved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. So did you make sort of a transition from another career? Like when you were young in your youth, did you have to get a real job? You know, you hear the word oh, yeah. job all the time. Did you have to do another career before you sort of launched into your quilting biz? Yeah, I had two pretty full careers before this. I mean, within the same, I mean, I went to school, I went to Otis College of Art and Design and graduated with degrees in commercial illustration and graphic design. So, I mean, I was always in that field, but when I was in college, I mean, I was like the epitome of a broke college student. I mean, there was, I was renting a couch from my roommate, Atsuko Watanabe. I rented her couch and for $75 a month, but I had to put it away. It was like a futon. I had to put it away every day because it was for a living room. Right. So I had to, I was like renting this sofa from her in her little studio apartment, but I had to be completely invisible when I wasn't there, but for 75 bucks, that was really manageable. So I had to get a job like ASAP. I mean, I was, how fast can I get out of school so that I can start working because I'm super hungry and I would really love a bed. And so I started in exhibit design. I worked for the Gene Autry Museum of Western Heritage in Los Angeles and worked as a junior designer there, worked on some really cool exhibits. And then from there, I went and I worked in a music merchandising company. So I was doing tour merchandise, design for a lot of bands and musical acts. I worked with a lot of different record labels over the course of my career, worked my way up to art director. And that's where I was at when I started this fabric design thing. So I left this job. I had spent a good chunk of my life at that point, over a third of my life building to try to do this. And thank goodness it worked out. Well, and those type of careers actually sound like really good stepping stones in business to learn some good stuff. You know, it's really interesting. This industry as a whole is really interesting because it's an industry of amateurs. So it's, you know, you don't go to school and get a degree in running a quilt industry business or, or being a quilt pattern writer or being a fabric designer. I mean, I suppose you get a textile degree, but it's not the same as this particular thing. So, so we've all come from it, come to this industry from other careers, other industries, other everything. And so everybody approaches it really, really differently. So in my case, the exhibit design helped me know how to build a booth, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was a big deal. Like I'm really grateful for that experience because I can lay vinyl better than like almost anybody. (laughs) I'm really, really good at it because I had to do it for these 40 foot walls that were 60 feet long with these like huge, you know, graphics and everything for years. So that really had a big impact on me not being afraid of these big booths and designing these sort of display things that really showed off the work and then working in the music industry for as long as I did. I really handle fabric collection releases like record releases because that's what I know. Mm, yeah. You know, when an artist, because a lot of the artists we worked with, we worked on all their work, you know? So, I mean, one of my biggest clients was Snoop Dogg. So we would work on on the whole album release all the way through. So I know that process and it's really not all that different. It's a collection of songs or a collection of fabrics that you're announcing and then releasing on this at a certain time and a certain day. And then it goes out to stores and then people buy it and then they talk about it. It's not really all any different, but so we've always kind of functioned under that 
sort of pathway because that's what I know. You know, there's Carolyn Friedlander, the fabric designer, was an architect. And you can see that in her work. You know, the structure and the way she draws her fabric is so, so cool because it it's so clearly come from the mind of an architect. And, you know, Cave was the painter and a knitter. And you can see that in his work and how he approaches it. And, and that's what I think is so fascinating about this industry is that everybody's bringing their experience from a completely unrelated industry yeah. into this. And that's how they approach it. And I, you know, when people ask me, like, how do you become a fabric designer? I, it, it's an impossible question to answer, because if you ask 10 very successful fabric designers, how they got to where they are, you'll get 10 wildly different answers. Yeah. And, and that's an important thing to understand is that it's, it's the thing that's different about you that will make you successful. Yeah. And it's not just one thing you need to do to become a designer. It's the journey that you've had all this time. Completely, completely. I feel like every part of my life has prepared me for this. Yeah. Yeah. So was there sort of a defining moment though, where you, you had the first fabric in your hands or you really felt this is my thing. I think I can do this for a living. I'm changing careers. Yeah. I mean, not uh, a defining moment, defining moment. I mean, I feel like there's been so many. So, you know, I struggled a lot for the first few years. I mean, financially, I struggled with knowing what I was doing, confidence. I mean, I remember sitting in my studio, like just watching, like binge watching TV shows when Netflix first came out because I didn't actually have any work to do, but I was like committed to being in the office, but I didn't have anything to do. But at a certain point, I had kind of worked my music job while I designed fabric. Then I moved to North Carolina for a while and I worked in a cupcake shop selling cupcakes while I was designing fabric. And then I moved to Texas and actually worked on staff with Moda for a few years, which was, you know, an incredible mind opening experience. And, and it's a great company. And, and I was designing fabric for them at the time. And then I thought, you know, there was a point at which I realized I sort of needed to shake things up. Like it wasn't really working. I wasn't really going anywhere. I think my time was too divided. And so I was like, I need to like, just get, spend one year, just give it a hundred percent of my attention. Don't worry about another job. And so I took what I had saved and that's how I ended up in the Midwest. I moved up to the Midwest where my mom was living. She rented a little house on her property to me for 500 bucks a month that I lived in for about a year or two. And, and I just worked like a hundred percent. I'm a fabric designer, nothing else because I could live in the Midwest so inexpensively. It gave me sort of the space to do that. And I just went all in and I thought at the end of this year, I will either have seen progress and it'll give me the momentum to keep going or I'll know it's not going to work. And then I will never look back and have regrets. Like I'll never look back and think I didn't try hard enough. Maybe I should have tried one more thing. And, and at the end of that year, I had made progress, not a ton, but enough. I was making a living wage. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, this is interesting. If this is as good as it gets, I can live with this. Like, yeah. I'm making enough money to like barely pay my bills, but I'm ecstatically happy with what I'm doing and and I can live like this can be it. This is enough. And then my brother graduated college and I said, why don't you come like work with me for a little while while you figure out what you're going to do? And honestly, I think when my brother and I 
Cameron put our heads together for the first time is when I really started to see things take off. He's 10 years younger than me. He has a wildly different perspective than I do. And, you know, I just feel like we're two halves of the same brain and together we're pretty unstoppable. And that's when, so he actually is the one who got me on social media. I never would have done it. Really? But never would have done it. Had zero interest in it. I wanted to be anonymous. Like I didn't, I didn't even put my face on anything until I was like five years in. Like I never had a picture of me anywhere or anything. I just want to design my fabric in anonymity. I still would love that. It's just like not on the table, but um. I just never imagined that because when we, I mean, obviously we see your forward facing stuff and that is where you absolutely shine. Your passion just exudes, your personality comes out. Well, and that's the thing that Cameron saw that I didn't is he's like, when you talk to me about what you do, I want to do it. Like no one else can talk about what you're doing the way you can. And I think people will want to hear what you have to say about it. He's like, you're so passionate. You love what you do so much. And I think people need to know that. And so he really pushed me into that. And actually fun fact, he started my Facebook page. That was the first sort of social media thing I had. I'd never been on Facebook before. No interest. If I want to know what my friends are up to, I will call them. Um, (laughs) uh, He started a Facebook page sort of without my knowledge because he saw how much much attention my blog was getting. And and I, I didn't even look at the numbers. I didn't care. I just, it's not how my brain works. And so he started a Facebook page for me, a Tulip Pink Facebook page without my knowledge and didn't tell me about it until it had a thousand followers. (laughs) And then, and cause he figured at a thousand followers, I couldn't shut it down. Yeah. Okay. If I have to, (laughs) if I, okay, well, I'm not going to like, you know, say goodbye to a thousand people. That's a thousand people, you know, like that's incredible. Like I never in a million years would have thought a thousand people would have followed my Facebook page. That seemed insane to me. It still seems kind of insane to me. But so then I was like, okay, well, now that you've started this, like you have to keep doing it. I'm not, I can't, yeah, like I can't manage this. Like I can answer questions and like interact with people, but I don't know what to put up because I don't think anything I do is interesting because it's normal for me, right? It's like, I can't identify the things that are interesting. So that's really what he does. Like I'll be doing something, he goes, I need to be videoing this. And I'm like, why? I'm just doing this really mundane thing. He's like, it's not mundane. Like it's really interesting. So, so he's really good at identifying those things in a way that I don't identify them. Yeah. And I have to say the thing that is so relatable about your Tuesdays and everything that you're doing online is that it does just simply seem like you're talking to your brother and it's so real. Like it's just a real. That is exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. It, you will be, you'll say something, you know, you'll say, oh, wait a minute, that is not true. Or I'm just going to, wait a minute, I, I'm correcting myself. You're just so real during the whole thing. Well, and it, it's very relatable. Yeah. I mean, those videos are about as real as it gets. Cause honestly, yeah. like they're not planned. Like we wake up Tuesday morning and we try to film the video by 10 a.m., like start it by 10 a.m. And between nine and 10, I'm just looking around going, what am I going to talk about today? We throw it up on the wall. I stand in front of it. Cameron pushes record and we just go. 
And then when the 15 minutes are up, we stop. I mean, it's literally that much. I mean, it's as, it's as real as it gets. We don't edit it. We don't, you know, it's just, it's total stream of consciousness. Yeah. And that's why it works so well. Do you put pencil to paper like a sketchy McSketcherson or do you design everything all digitally? I am a hardcore sketchy McSketcherson. Everything starts pencil and paper. It does get digital at a certain point. It has to, but yeah, no, every single thing I do is pencil and paper. Like my pencil and paper collection is vast and I have cabinets full of drawings. I mean, everything gets drawn first. Everything that I do digitally is only a redrafting of my pencil drawings. Yeah, that sounds great. And so you take what you've done and you transfer it into some kind of program. And is that where you start infusing color into it? Yeah. So I redraw everything in Adobe Illustrator, which is basically just digital drawing. And I try to stick as close to my pencil sketch as humanly possible. And I work in grayscale, black, white, and gray up until the end. I don't do color until the very end. I drop in value and then I transfer those values to colors. Because if I work in color too early, I find that I get so used to seeing something in blue that I can't make it any other color. It never looks right. And then the, maybe the furthest I can go is purple. Like, you know, it's like, it ends up being two colorways that are really similar because I'm just so used to seeing it in one color. So I work completely in grayscale, which is why I draw on pencil and not with any other medium because I keep it in grayscale till the very end. And that's when I do the color because I can see it more clearly in different colors. If I have no color assumption. I know you get the inspiration question a lot. How do you get inspired for all these wonderful designs? But I'm interested in when you're in the world and you see or hear or feel something that inspires you, how do you capture that and then have it for a future idea to put into fabric? You know, it's funny because my, I mean, maybe it's funny, maybe it's not funny, who knows, but I'm not really externally inspired as essentially, I mean, I've tried to answer this question for years, like the inspiration question. And I find it really difficult to answer because it's such a, it's, it's such an auto response from my brain that it's not something I pay a lot of attention to. It's just the way, way I think, but essentially what inspires me is, is possibility, right? So I don't really look around and then take that inspiration and bring it in internally. It's more, it starts internally and works outward. So I spend about 90% of my life by myself or with a dog, but mostly by myself. And, and I just, I meander, like I'm a mental meanderer and I think of the way I wish things were. And then that's what I draw. Yeah. And, and I might look externally to see how to draw that branch appropriately. Like I might go outside and look at a tree and go, oh, that's how it comes off the, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the trunk or whatever, but it's really internal outward rather than external inward for me. Yeah. And it's so delightful that you're bringing those things into the world. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the only, it's the only way I can. You know, like I wish so many things in, in reality were different. And the only way I can really like express that or make any changes is to, is to draw it and, and make it into something else. And then that at least exists in the world as sort of, it's an alternate reality, really. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So what do you think it is about your designs that really resonates with the quilt? Like you said, it was gradual, the growth of your mm-hmm. popularity, but what do you think really hits home for people? I mean, I've thought about this because it is, and probably always will, I hope it always will be a surprise to me that people, I mean, people feel deeply about my work sometimes and it just boggles my mind and I love it. I I believe, and this is not based on science, but I believe that people feel in what I do, what I put into it somehow right? The way like an elephant can find an ancestral home that they've never been to, you know, like there's, there's unexplainable things. Right. And I, I feel like, I mean, I care. I love so deeply what I do and somehow I feel like that's projected out from it. And people maybe don't, don't know that they feel that, but but there's something that draws people to it. You know, it's, it's a wonderland. It's a made up place. This, this world that I draw. And I think people are attracted to a place that's, that's happy and full of imagination and wonder. And, you know, all of these, it it feels happy. Like it feels happy to me, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, We can see that. I mean, I just watched your Everglow unboxing recently and it like, it never gets old. Like, but what was it like what was it like to feel that very first ever fabric in your hands? Like the first collection you ever designed when it was in your hand for the first time? I mean, it was pretty crazy. It was wild to see. I mean, in my early days when I was first designing fabric, my complete vision never really made it onto fabric. It was getting changed in art direction heavily And, and rightfully so. I was green. I didn't know what I was doing. Like there was no reason to trust me. And it's funny because I look at that first collection I sent in today, like my version of it, it ended up being really pastel, which is not what I sent in, but it was the right decision for them to make at the time. Right. So like, I have no bad feelings about that. I think it was, it was correct. Then you have to earn your right to sort of dictate your own terms, right? But I would say when I look back at what I sent in for that first collection, Full Moon Forest, it's like charcoal, it's like a deep charcoal gray black with like neon pinks and hot teals and lime greens and all these colors that honestly would be very at home in my work today. Yeah. But when it came out, it was really different. So I would say the first, the first collection of fabric that I ever got back that matched my vision. That was exactly what I, what I saw was the original Parisville, which was my first collection for free spirit fabrics. And, and they printed the fabric exactly the way I dictated it and seeing something in my head that I'd only seen sort of on paper printed out of my printer or on a screen or in my hands, like in the form of a drawing, but seeing that as a real thing that I can now cut and, and press and sew and do, all, I mean, I cried. Is that dorky? But I did. <laughs> no. Um, I still do sometimes. I think I might have shed a tear for Everglow. It was just so magical. But I mean, having a creative mind, a mind that's kind of always going and and always dreaming things up. It's a rare thing to be able to actually hold that dream in your hand at some point, right? Like yeah. hold I feel like I'm holding my imagination in my hands. Yeah. And that's wild. Like that's a wild thing, you know, and it's it's a useful thing. It's not 
It's not a picture to hang on a wall. Like the drawing is one thing, but having real fabric in your hand, something that you can then further manipulate and, and turn into other things. I mean, there's nothing like it. If you're listening right now, you need to go onto Tula's Instagram and watch the Everglow unboxing because she's blown away by the unboxing herself. So it's just I've so always exciting surprised to watch. by my own work, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Like like and you had to you had to understand too that like when I was opening the box of Everglow from the mill, you know, just come in, I hadn't seen it in six months. Yeah. Like I had, I had seen strike offs or like my, my sample approvals for that months, months, months before that. And between those two periods of time, I had designed two new collections. So my brain isn't there anymore. I think that was especially true with Everglow because of the neon. So I can't print neon off my computer. I can't represent neon on my screen. So really I had never actually seen the ink. Like really in full color, like the way I had imagined it. Like, so every time I would look at my screen or a printout or something, I had to go, yeah, but that's neon. Yeah. Like it looks just pink, but it's really neon pink, which is a different thing. Right. So we're going to get into talking about some of the designs right away, but you've designed over 40 collections and you have a bunch in the works as well still. And how many years was that? 40 collections. Uh, you know, it's hard to remember exactly. I think we're at about 16 years, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. It's hard to even wrap your head around that you could do that much in that amount of time. Like that is some mad skills and planning and organization. Like, yeah, I, it's a lot. Like when I look at it, it's, it's actually kind of crazy. I was doing something, you know, I have to copyright everything. And I was going through some of my copyright holdings with my copyright attorney the other day. And I was like, wait, I hold how many, how many copyrights? Like it's, it is kind of mind boggling, like just the the sheer amount of work I've done in that amount of time. I mean, the fact that you spent 90% of your time alone just tells us (laughs) that you're, you know, immersed in this whole process, but hundred percent, but who's in charge of your calendar? Uh, Me pretty much. (laughs) I can't even imagine that. Yeah. I mean, My mom used to be in charge of my calendar. She managed all my travel, but since COVID, no more traveling, that's kind of off the table. So really I manage it. It, I mean, it's a group calendar that gets added to, you know, so it's sort of, I mean, and I work with like free spirit will manage some things for me, you know, I'm not a lone wolf over here in terms of management, but you know, my brother handles a lot of like, he handles all of the sort of marketing calendar, which is really the biggest Mm -hmm. calendar to manage, you know, the release dates that, cause I don't, I'm bad at time and dates and like if you've watched any of my videos and me trying to tell you when something ships, I'm like, it might be April or May. No, it's March. Like I never yeah. know. And I yeah. will have just looked at it like three seconds earlier and <laughs> I still don't know. But I mean, I'll say something happened a month ago and Cameron will be like, that was two years ago. I'm like, really? It's been that long? <laughs> like, I, I have no concept of time. So great. So well, it's impressive that you can keep it all together. So I'm curious, what do you do in your personal life that sort of keeps that nice balance, you know, your self-preservation, your self-care. Yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, I know that work-life balance exists. I I don't I don't know what that's <laughs> like personally. I mean, it's so seamless. I mean, for me work-life balance just is the difference between 
making and designing things to sell and making and designing things for joy. That's my work-life balance. (laughs) And my family. I mean, I spend a lot of time with me and I have friends. Like I'm not a total, like, you know, reclusive person. I mean, I kind of am, but it's important. Family stuff, super important to me. Love my family. We're all very, very close, you know? So like volleyball season, I'm going to all the games, basketball season. I'm going to all the games, you know, when my brother was little, like hockey season, I went to all the games. So being present with my family is super important. And then I I tend to do things in chunks. It's like what I am really good at in terms of work-life balance is when I'm working, I'm 100% working, no distractions. But when I'm not working, I'm 100% not working. I'm not going to answer emails at night or on the weekends. I'm not going to like, I, and that's something I learned that from somebody, but I, I can't remember who. I'll think of it someday at some point, but you know, it's like, I give a hundred percent to whatever I'm doing when I'm doing it. There was a time that I worked seven days a week and like 16 hours a day. Like I just never stopped. And at a certain point I realized I wasn't getting as much done as I thought I was. Yeah. And because I was never a hundred percent committed at any time, because I didn't have to be a hundred percent committed during the day because I knew I would work into the night. So I put a lot of discipline on myself at a certain point and that really changed the game for me. And I have really strong studio hours, work hours. I do certain things on certain days. Like, you know, I know what days are for bookkeeping and business running and organization and paperwork filing and all of that copyright stuff. There's certain days that are specifically for doing videos, doing podcasts, doing interviews, you know, I'm very disciplined about my time now. And that's made all the difference. I think I work a lot more efficiently. Yeah. I get a lot more done and, and it's more satisfying because it's more condensed. And then when I'm off work, I'm a hundred percent off work. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. making quilts. They're just not to sell products. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great thing. And I seem to remember, I don't know if I saw an interview one time or something, but you were talking about a creative escape that you do once a year with friends. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's part of the like sort of hundred percent. So I don't take a lot of time off, but when I do, I take a lot of time off and it's really focused on being off, but I have a group of friends and we're all in the industry in various capacities, quilting of some kind. We, we all sort of make our living off of quilting to some degree and we get together, we go to this like very remote place and we just, sew. we live in our pajamas for like 10 days. We sew all day. We hand sew at night while we watch movies. We talk about sewing. <laughs> we just hang out and sew and eat. And the rule is that you cannot make anything during this time that you monetize in any way. Ah, that's good. So that's the rule. And, and if you do monetize something you make in this week, then you can't come the next time. And <gasps> oh, that's <yeah>. a big consequence. <laughs> worst. Yes. So it's really funny because we'll all be working on something and you'll see somebody like it dawn on them that this might make a really good pattern or a really good something. And it'll like, very sneakily slide off the table and into a bag. And then they're sewing something else because <laughs> don't want the penalty. So um, yeah. 
But it's great because that's one thing that I think is is crazy important to my career. So the number one enemy of anybody in this in this career is burnout. That is yeah. that is the thing that I'm most acutely focused on in all time. And Cameron also, like he's really he's like, hey, you're running in the red zone. You need to yeah. take take a break. You need to chill out. Like oh, you're overwhelmed. Great. You're in the red zone. This is no good for anybody. But one of the things that keeps me from burnout, I do this because I love it. It was my hobby. It was the thing I did to get away from everything else. Now that I've made it my job, doesn't mean that my job still feeds that my soul in that same way. It doesn't because it's, it's different. You know, it changes things when you make it your job. So I have to keep feeding that original hobby, that original thing that got me into this, which is why I make quilts that are just for me. I mean, I make quilts that I never show on anything that are maybe some of my favorite quilts I've ever made, but they're just to feed my soul to keep me in the game. Right. And also to keep me connected to my customer. Like once you become professional, you stop sort of becoming, you're not your customer anymore. And, and what makes me so connected to them is that I'm just like them. I go to fabric shops, I get excited about new stuff that comes out. Well, I can't do that if I'm not doing that. Right. So I have to continue to be a customer of my own industry to know what my industry wants and, and how best to serve it. Yeah. So that sparks a little question in the back of my mind as a fabric designer yourself, what fabric designers do you love? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, you know, I think I mentioned this in a video the other day, right after we got back from Quilt Market, is, you know, I walk around and it's like, this industry has so much talent, like just an insane amount of talent. And and I, I love seeing what everybody else does. Like, I adore it. It's so cool because we all do something really different, you know, for the most part. And Obviously, I still love CAFE and CAFE Collective now because it's like so many people. I still love what they do. I love that he's been able to do this for so long. I mean, he just had his 85th birthday, which is crazy and still like the same guy he's always been. That's amazing. I mean, I loved Amy Butler back when she was designing fabric. I loved Mm -hmm. her. I loved her as a person too. You know, I mentioned Carolyn Friedlander. I love her work. I It's totally the opposite of mine. And I love that about it. Anna Maria Horner, huge fan of hers as a person as and as a designer. I mean, there's just so many. I mean, William Morris will always be my one true love, but you know, he's dead. So yeah, I have a, a very substantial Liberty of London stash. I don't really use it anymore. I used to. It, it's weird kind of what's happened over the years. I, I mean, this is just kind of a weird, funny story, but I mean, I, I collect tons of fabric. I mean, I have, I love Alexander Henry fabrics too. Like they just do the weirdest stuff that's ever been done. And it's just so bizarre. And I love it so much. It's just like no boundaries. But so I have like a, a fairly substantial stash of other people's fabric and I constantly buying it and collecting it. And I just love it. It's art, you know, it's beautiful. And, and I made a quote, this was, I want to say like five years, five, six years ago, again, no concept of time that could have been like last week. I don't know, (laughs) but I made a quilt that was not my pattern, which I do all the time. I make other people's patterns all the time because I'm really a fabric designer, not so much a pattern designer. Although I do do that. That's not my main focus, but, and then I made the whole thing out of Liberty of London because I love Liberty fabric. And it was 
beautiful. It was really beautiful. I had it quilted. I bound it. I set it out and I had zero emotional connection to it. Oh, that's interesting. It was gorgeous. Like it was not the quilt's fault. It was the fabric was beautiful. The quilt was beautiful. It was so, so good. And that's when I realized that if I make something out of someone else's fabric, I'm not connected to it. Oh, interesting. Like at all. So you're just like infused in the whole process right from sketch, pencil sketching your own fabric. Yeah, it was this really strange realization. And I still collect other people's fabric and I I have aspirations of you. And I will use it. It just has to be like mostly my fabric for me to feel connected to it. Yeah, And so that's kind of what started True Colors for me. Yeah. Which is my sort of replenishable collection of, you know, they would technically be like blenders or basics, but they're neither blendery nor basic. So I don't know what to call them, but I was like, I need more pieces so that I don't have to go outside my world. Yeah. You know, and they kind of go with all your collections, right? Correct. You know, these things I can, these supplemental pieces that I can add in to, to my core collections and the solids. That's why we started the solids too, because I often need a solid and I just got really addicted to this idea of not having to go outside of my own sort of created world, you know? And so we started building this support team for my main core collections, which is true colors and solids. And that's been really cool because now I really don't have to go outside my world. It's very rare that I do. Yeah. Well, let's talk about all these lines of fabrics. We just don't have (laughs) enough time in the day. I know. So I was watching one of your Tuesday lives quite some time ago and you were doing a tour of your space, I think. And you said, do not comment asking where you can get archive fabrics. So tell us how you have fabric (laughs) collections laid out on your website. You have archive, replenishable, in stores now and coming soon. So do you, yeah. do you want me to just pick some of my favorites and we can talk about sure. those? Or what? Okay. Sure. So from the archive, I really love the Parisville collection, uh-huh. but you also did this thing called the Deja Vu. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, okay. So Deja Vu came from There's this thing that happened totally outside my control, has nothing to do with me, where people started trading my old fabrics and selling them. And and they became insanely expensive online. I mean, people were buying a yard of fabric for hundreds and hundreds of dollars of old out-of-print fabric. And I mean while super flattering, like it's super cool. And I genuinely don't have a problem with it. I mean, I see it kind of like baseball cards to a degree, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like an old baseball card you can't get from a player who's passed on is like, you know, more valuable. And that's kind of what these old collections were. They'll never be made again, you know, not in the same way they were originally. And, but it also created sort of a problem that I really wanted to solve, which is what about people who are new? right? Who weren't there originally to get these fabrics at normal prices, but love them and want them, but, but can't afford to spend this kind of money on them. And how do I give that to them without devaluing, Mm -hmm. you know, because people have put out, you know, a good amount of money for these old fabrics. I don't want to now make that investment worthless for them out of respect for them, you know? And so like, how do I service new people and give them fabric at regular prices while while not devaluing the old stuff. So after like 
quite a few years of trying to figure this out, we came up with the deja vu idea, which is essentially, it's not just reprinting an old collection. I don't want to do that. I never will. I'll never just take a collection and reprint it. But how to add value to the original collection while giving new people access to it. And so that's what deja vu is. So if the original collection came in three colorways, I'm adding a fourth colorway to the collection. So it will never be reprinted exactly as it was. It's an enhancement of that original. So you can get those prints at a reasonable, regular, normal retail price, but it won't be exactly the same as the original. So the people that have the original still have something special that's unique, that's, you know, in limited existence, but new people can still get a shot at it. Yeah. And so for replenishable, you talked about creating something that could be used with all the fabrics that you've designed and it was filling a need for you and for them. Mm -hmm. But in your recent unboxing, you unboxed something that's unusual for you that Uh was white in the background. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. White, white, white. Everybody (laughs) loves white. So (laughs) white is great. I have a thing about white. I just feel like there's always another option, you know? And I think that colors, like bright colors, which I use, look really harsh against pure white. So I have always historically softened it with like a soft white. So I've always used this. It's not really a cream. It's not really an off-white. It's just a softer white. And so, and people have been begging me for years for a true white, And I have resisted for a very long time. But finally, I was like, okay, I'll give you your white. Let's see what you do with it. So, and we did that really in the black and white collection called Line Work. We did a pure white with pure black. So, and that was obvious to me that I had no problem with, right? But it did warm me up to the idea of white. And so finally, I was like, okay, maybe they have a point about white. Maybe I was wrong. So... I still don't know that I was wrong, but so we did a white on white with line work. And then we just recently released a 108 wide back that's white on white. And then with that, we added fairy dust, which is one of my most popular fabrics of all time. And, and we did that because it comes on a soft white. Yeah. And so we added a pure white to that. And they're like, what do you want to call the name of it? Because like the soft white is called cotton candy because everything has to have a crazy name. Right. Yeah. And I was like, they want a white. We are calling this white. It is white. (laughs) (laughs) That's so So there's no confusion. So that's like one of my only fabrics that's just, it's called what it's called. It's just white. <laughs> you okay, know? so let's let's pick a couple more. So in the in-stores <sighs> now category, like, by the way, if you're listening right now, you can go on the website and you can see all, you see the fabric archive replenishable. In-stores now, I want to talk about something. Let me just think of, oh, there's so many. How do I choose one that I like the most? <laughs> let's talk about Curious and Curiouser. Okay. I mean, it's a great name. Let's talk about that. So Curiouser and Curiouser is based on Alice in Wonderland, which I think is evident from the title if you're familiar with the book. Alice in Wonderland is this thing that people have touched on or continually touching on. It's just one of those enduring stories. But, you know, it's just this story about seeing everything upside down, right? Like just seeing everything in a different way. And most of the representations, not many of the representations of Alice in Wonderland I've seen really try hard to replicate the original artwork, which is kind of not what the story is about. 
the story is about seeing things your own way, right? Yeah. So I wanted to do an Alice in Wonderland that that referenced it, but maybe wasn't so like nail on the head about it. It was kind of run through my own filter and see what comes out. And that was a really fun collection because Alice in the Alice fabric is actually a, an illustration of one of the twins, Joe. Oh. And so she had to model for that. And, and it was really, she hates it now because it had, she had braces at the time and I included them. So the braces are in the picture. She's like, why do you have to draw me with my braces on? I was like, because it's adorable. And, it and it took you out of the original, like it, I didn't want it to be just like a straight reference of the original story. Cause it's not, if you want the original story, read the original story. This is a fabric line. It's totally a different thing. So it was really my interpretation. I really tried to get the other twin Jane to be the Mad Hatter, but she was not into it. So. <laughs> but yeah, so that was a really fun one that was different than what I normally do to a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of take these little sort of side routes from time to time and do things. Yeah. I, I want to surprise people. I don't want ever, I don't ever want to come out with a collection where somebody goes, Oh, that's exactly what I thought she'd do next. Yeah, there's they're so different every time. Okay, I have to pick another one from in stores now. We can't just do one. So there's so many good ones. The dots and stripes are amazing. The true colors. How about tiny beasts? Let's oh, talk about that. Tiny beasts. So tiny beast is funny. It was really supposed to be a lot tinier than it turned out, but the amount of detail I put in couldn't be printed any smaller than that. But so tiny beasts, like again, that comes from the idea of trying to shake things up. Like I'm always trying yeah. to like do something you're not expecting. So, so my prints had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I wanted to just like reverse that track, like really, really quickly sort of whiplash people into something totally different. And so I pitched this to my creative director. I said, for my next collection, I want to do all tiny, tiny things. Like I want to make the prints as small as I possibly can. And she was like, okay. Like that's, that's not what people are like, because the best selling prints in any collection, are always the big main print. She goes, so what's your hero? I'm like, that's the point. They're all heroes. Like mm -hmm. they're all tiny heroes. And we'd had the palms and the stripes and true colors out for a long time. And I really felt like true colors needed a tiny dot, like the opposite that kind of yeah. worked with it. So I did a tiny beast, which is 14 prints of little animals. And they're essentially all focal prints. They're just small. And then a collection of true colors, tiny dots and tiny stripes to go with it. So it's a pin dot and a pin stripe to go with it. And, and that was just me trying to keep people on their toes, you know, yeah. like not. I love that collection. Doing. I love it so much. And you know, what's <clears throat> the interesting thing about this collection is that I saw it surfacing everywhere like even in my modern guild all of a sudden I'm like oh there's the what the tiny beasts coming out in the little modern quilts in our in our uh -huh. show and tell and the thing that I love the little detail that I loved most about this collection was the tiny hedgehog with the uh -huh. sort of like it was like a dandelion gone to it's, seed yeah. on his back oh I <laughs> it's love that is dandelion I, I actually love that. I drew the hedgehog and then I was like, okay, but it's like a hedgehog. Who cares? You know? And then I was oh. like, but it could be a hedgehog dandelion. And I think that piece is called Who's Your Dandy, which I think is hysterical. Um, <laughs> but it's hysterical. Who named that? <laughs> I think I named that one. 
we tend to do like a group naming session. We usually take a day when everything's done and we lay it all out. And then we like, cause all the names sort of have a theme, you know, like in moon garden, I think they're all based on like, like common sayings, but turn like, like the dragonfly is dragging your feet. The snake is hissy fit. Like they're all sort of like action phrases. I try to have a common thread. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, but naming things is the worst. Oh, so good. Okay, so we are about to get into the coming soon category of Tula Pink's fabric lines on her website at tulapink.com. And speaking of coming soon, this is where we are splitting this podcast in half. Just to add a little suspense, of course, if you just can't stand it and you need to know more right now, you can go to Tula's website to see her latest three lines of fabric called Moon Garden, Neon Dots and Stripes, and Everglow. But we will dive into those stories next week and so much more. Another whole episode. So you just listened to part one at over an hour already. And part two has just as much Tula Pink goodness. And it's coming one week from today. So right now I'm going to outline my generous sponsors. So listen in because without advertising, this podcast would not happen. And please stick with me right until the end to hear all about the prize giveaway. You know it's going to be good. And every one of today's sponsors has contributed to the prize. And one lucky listener will win it all on January 1st. We'll be right back. Today's advertisers are Free Spirit Fabrics, Orophil, and Oliso. Free Spirit designer Tula Pink's iconic fabrics are sought after by makers across the globe. Her signature designs have been adapted to fabrics, woven ribbons, paper products, needlepoint kits, embroidery patterns, and sewing machines, and can be found in independent fabric shops and retailers all over the world. Tula is most recognized in her industries for her dark sense of humor, a flair for hiding animals in the strangest of places, artistically, not literally, and her boldly unique use of color and pattern. You can learn more about Tula at freespiritfabrics.com or through her social media channels at Tula Pink. Orophil is an accomplished Italian company based in Milan, Italy, who specialize in the production of the highest quality 100% cotton threads from the Mako region of Egypt. The threads have achieved worldwide success thanks to a dedicated community of sewists, quilters, designers, artisans, and craftspersons who herald the thread for its versatility, its strength, and the fact that it produces virtually no lint. In 2023, Orophil will celebrate 10 years of partnership with the amazing Tula Pink by launching a brand new collaboration, three custom colors of 50 weight thread dyed to match the neon hues in Tula's upcoming Everglow fabric collection. Be sure to subscribe to Orophil's newsletter for more information. The Oliso TG1600 Pro Plus Smart Iron has iTouch technology. Simply touch the handle and the iron lowers, ready to work. Take your hand off and the patented scorch guards lift the iron off the board, preventing scorches, burns, and tipping. It's not only safer, but it also saves time as well as your wrists. 
the 12-foot swivel cord, 12.7-ounce water tank, and ceramic flow sole plate are just a few of its new features. Pair it with the M2 Pro Mini Project Iron, and your pressing needs are complete. Follow Oliso for more at Oliso Home on Instagram. And now for the Tula Pink Episodes prize giveaway. Free Spirit Fabrics is giving away the True Colors Tiny Dots and Tiny Stripes 42-piece 5-inch charm pack, the Mythical Solids 40-piece design roll, and the Moon Garden 20-piece fat quarter bundle. All of this valued at over $140 US dollars. Aurafil is giving away a thread pack of Tula Pink Moon Garden and Tula Sunrise, all of this valued at over $160 US dollars. And Oliso is giving away an M2 Pro Mini Project Iron in pink, of course, valued at $60 US. Well, that was awesome. So do we need a reminder of how to enter the draw? The easiest way to never miss the link is to get on my Quilter on Fire email list. Go to the Quilter on Fire website, scroll down to the bottom to enter your email and get on the email list and you'll get an email for part two of the Tulip Pink episodes and you can enter right there. It's coming next Tuesday. Or if you missed this week's email, click on the show notes and the link is there and you get extra entries if you like and follow Quilter on Fire everywhere on social media. Instead of the usual five-day window to enter the draw, it will be open for almost two weeks until Sunday, January 1st at 1 p.m. Pacific time. So I'll announce the winner on social media on New Year's Day. And speaking of the holidays, whether you celebrate or not at this time of year, no matter who you are, who you love, or where you live, no matter what skin you are in or what language you speak, I wish you all the best in life, all the best in love, all the best of health, and a world of happiness. But most of all, happy quilting. Now don't miss part two of the Tulip Pink episodes. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.